to my favorite theorem, a math podcast. Uh, I'm Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, and this is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. How's it going? All right. Yeah. yeah. Um, up early today for me. Uh, you, you know, you're on the East Coast and I'm in the mountain time zone. And actually, when my husband is on uh, math trips, uh, if or it, actually, sorry, if I'm on math trips in the East Coast and he's in the mountain time zone, then we have like the same schedule uh -huh. and we can like talk to each other before we go to bed. I, I'm sort of a night owl. So oh, yeah, uh -huh. we're, is, is, we're is, up early today and I always complain about that the whole time. Sure. So. Is he a morning person? Yes, very See, much. So Ellen and I are decidedly not. I mean, I'd still be in bed really if I, if I had my way. But you know, now that I'm a responsible adult and chair of the department, I have to even in the summer, get my get get in here to to make sure that things are running smoothly. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, other than other than the ungodly hour, it's eight a.m. So then yes, everything is great. Right. Cool. All right. Well, I'm excited for this episode. Yes, and today we're very happy to have Jim Prop join us. Hi, Jim. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a math professor at UMass Lowell. My research is in combinatorics, probability, and dynamical systems, and I also blog and tweet about mathematics. You do. Your blog's great, actually. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoy it. And, you know, you're smart. Once a month. Yes, that, that was a wise choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Most months, I think on the 17th, uh, Jim has an excellent post at Math Enchantments. Right. So, um, yeah, it's a big treat. I think somehow I didn't realize that you did some things with dynamical systems, too. I feel like I'm familiar with with you in like the combinatorics kind of world. So I learned something new already. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I actually did my uh, PhD work in ergodic theory. And okay. then yeah, after a few years of doing postdoc in that field, I thought, no, I'm gonna go back to combinatorics, which was sort of my first love. And then some probability mixed in with that. Right, and actually we, we had some job candidates this year in combinatorics and uh, one of them was talking about, you have a list of problems apparently that's famous, I don't know. Oh, yeah. the tilings, yes. Tiling. Problem, enumeration of tilings. That's right. It was, it was a talk about tilings. Really interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I should say I have gone back to, to dynamical systems a little bit, combining it with combinatorics, and that's uh, a big part of what I do these days, but I won't be talking about that at all. Okay. okay. So, so and what, what is your favorite theorem? Ah, uh, well, um, I've actually been sort of leading you on a bit because... Um, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you my favorite theorem, awesome. partly because I don't have a favorite theorem. Sure. And, and if I did, I wouldn't tell you about it on this podcast because it would probably have a heavy visual component, mm. like most of my favorite things in math, and it probably wouldn't be suited to the purely auditory podcast medium. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what are you going to tell us? Well, I could tell you about one theorem that I like that doesn't have much geometric content, but I'm not going to do that either. Okay. Okay. So what bottom of the barrel? Yeah, uh, <laughs> no. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you about two theorems. Okay. That okay. I like. Fair. Okay. They're sort of like twins. Uh, one is in continuous mathematics, and one is in discrete mathematics. Great. Um, the first one, the one in continuous mathematics, is pretty obscure, and the second one, in discrete mathematics, is incredibly obscure. Okay. Like nobody's <laughs> named it, and I've only found it actually referred to in the you know stated as a result in the literature once. But I feel it's kind of underneath the surface, making a lot of things work, and mm. also showing resemblances between discrete and continuous mathematics. So these are like my two favorite underappreciated theorems. Oh, okay. excellent. Okay, great. 
So what do we, what do we got? Okay, so for both of these theorems, the underlying principle, and this is going to sound kind of stupid, is if something doesn't change, it's constant. Hmm, okay. Okay, yes, right? that is a good principle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like a tautology because, you know, doesn't not changing and being constant mean the same thing. Um, or it sounds like a garbled version of change is the only constant, but no, mm -hmm. this is actually a mathematical idea. So in the continuous realm, when I say something, what I mean is some differentiable function. Mm -hmm. And when I say doesn't change, I mean has derivative zero. Sure. Since derivatives are the way you measure change for continu you know, differentiable mm -hmm. functions. Right. So if you've got a differentiable function whose derivative is zero, let's assume it's a function on the real line. So mm -hmm. its derivative is zero everywhere, then it's just a constant function. Yes. And this is a corollary of the mean value theorem. Correct. Yeah. Yes. I should mention, though, the converse is very different. The converse is a, almost a triviality. The converse says if you've got a constant function, mm -hmm. then its derivative is zero. Sure. And that just follows immediately from the definition of the derivative. Mm -hmm. but, but the constant value theorem, as you say, is a consequence of the mean value theorem, which is not a triviality to prove. No. Yeah. In fact, we'll come back later to the chain of implications that lead you to the constant value theorem, because it's, it's surprisingly long yes. in, in most developments. Yeah. But uh, Anyway, I want to point out that it's kind of everywhere, this result, at least in log tables if people, I mean, say not log tables, uh, anti-differential, anti-differentiation tables. If you look mm -hmm. up antiderivatives, you'll always see this plus C right, as the right. antiderivative in any responsible, mathematically rigorous table of integrals. Mm -hmm. uh, because for antiderivatives, there's always this ambiguity of a constant. Um, and those are the only antiderivatives of a function that's defined on the whole real line is, you know, you just add a constant to it. No other way of modifying the function will leave its derivative alone. Right. And more generally, when you've got a theorem that says what all the solutions to some differential equation are, the theorem that guarantees there aren't any other solutions you aren't expecting is usually proved by appealing to the constant value theorem at mm -hmm. some level. You show that something has derivative zero, you say, oh, it must be constant. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, before I talk about how the constant value theorem gets proved, I want to talk about how it gets used, especially in Newtonian physics, because that's sort of where calculus comes from. Mm -hmm. So Newtonian physics says that if you know the initial state of a system, you know, of a bunch of objects, you know their positions, you know their velocities, and you know the forces that act on those objects as the system evolves, then you can predict where the objects will be later on by solving a differential equation. And if you know the initial state and the differential equation, then you can predict exactly what's going to happen. The future of the system is uniquely determined. Right. Okay. So for instance, take a simple case. You've got an object moving at a constant velocity. And let's say there are no forces acting on it at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Since there are no forces, the acceleration is zero. And the acceleration is the rate of change of the velocity. So the velocity has derivative zero everywhere mm -hmm. so that means the velocity will be constant sure and the object will just keep on moving at the same speed if the constant value theorem were false we wouldn't really be able to make that assertion that you know the object continues traveling at constant velocity just because there are no forces acting on it so sure the kind of pillars of newtonian physics are mm -hmm. that when you know the derivative, then you really know the function up to an ambiguity that can be resolved by appealing to initial conditions. Yeah. Sure. Okay. 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 So this is actually telling us something deep about the real numbers, which Newton didn't realize, but which came out like in the 19th century when people began to try to make rigorous sense of Newton's ideas. 
And there's actually a kind of deformed version of Newton's physics that's crazy in the sense that you can't really predict things from their derivatives and from their initial conditions, mm-hmm. which no responsible physicist has ever proposed because it's so unrealistic. But there are some kind of crazy mathematicians who don't like irrational numbers. I won't name names, but they think we should purge mathematics of the real number system and all these horrible numbers that are in it, and we should just do things with rational numbers. And if these people try to do physics just using rational numbers, they would run into trouble. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you can have a function from the rational numbers to itself whose derivative is zero everywhere, with derivative being defined you know, in the natural way for ra- functions from the rationals to itself, that isn't a constant function. Okay. So I don't know if you guys have heard this story before. This is making my head hurt a little, but okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like I have heard this, but I cannot recall any details. So please yeah. tell me. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we know that the square root of two is irrational. So, sure. so every rational number, if you square it, is either going to be less than two or greater than two. Yes. So we could define a function from the rational numbers to itself that takes the value zero mm-hmm. if the input value x satisfies the inequality x squared is less than two. Okay. Mm-hmm and takes the value one if x squared is bigger than two. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this is not a constant function. No. Right. Okay. But it actually is not only continuous, but differentiable as a function from the rational to itself. Right. The derivative is zero, but it's not constant. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because take any rational number. Okay. It's going to have a little neighborhood around it. Yep. You know, avoiding the square root of two, avoiding the hole in the rational number line where the square root of two would be. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be constant on that little interval. So the derivative of that function is going to be zero sure. at every rational number. So there you have a non-constant function whose derivative is zero everywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. And that's not good. No. It's not good for math. It's terrible for physics. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you really need the completeness property of the reals in a key way to know that the constant value theorem is true because it just fails for things like the set of rational numbers. Right. Okay, sure. This is part of the story that Newton didn't know, but people like Cauchy figured it out, you know, long after. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's go back to the question of how you prove the constant value theorem. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I wanted to jump back, though, because I feel like I wanted to sell a bit more strongly this idea that the constant value theorem is important. Because if you couldn't predict the motions of particles from forces acting on those particles, no one would be interested in Newton's ideas. Because the, sure. the whole story there is that it is predictive of what things will do. It gives us this sort of clockwork universe. Sure. The Newton's laws of motion are kind of like the rails that mm-hmm. the Newtonian universe runs on. Right. And the constant value theorem is what keeps the universe from jumping off those rails. Okay. I like that, yeah. I like that analogy. That's good. That's the note I, I want to end on for, for that part <laughs> okay. of the, the discussion. But now okay. getting back to the math of it. So, so how do you prove the constant value theorem? Well, you told me you prove it from the mean value theorem. Do you sure. remember how you prove the mean value theorem? Uh, you use Rolle's theorem. <laughs> and to prove ro- just the mean value theorem yeah, turned sideways sort of yeah and then and then uh yeah i always i always joke it's the forrest gump proof right you 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 draw the mean value theorem you draw the picture on the board and then you tilt your head then you see that it's then you see that it's Rolle's theorem um okay but Rolle's theorem requires um 
uh, I guess what we sometimes call in calculus books Fermat's theorem, that if you have a differentiable function and you're at a local max or min, the derivative is equal to zero. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. Uh, okay. Well, actually, and, I think the fact that there exists even such a point at all right. is something. Yeah. Right. So I think that's called the extreme value theorem. Maybe. Well, the extreme value theorem I always think of as, as well, I'm a topologist. That's the, the image of a compact set is compact. Okay. Right. Um, okay. So they need to know what the compact sets of the real line are. <laughs> you know about boundedness and stuff like that, and closedness. Closed and bounded, right. Okay. You're right. This is, get, this is an increasingly long chain of things that we never teach in Calculus 1. Really. Yeah. Not really I've tried to do this in some honors classes with you know, varying levels of success. But sure. There's the boundedness theorem, which says that you know, a continuous function is bounded on a, on a closed interval. Mm -hmm. uh, but then how do you prove that? Well, you know, Bolzano-Weierstrass mm -hmm. would be a natural choice if you were teaching a graduate class. Mm -hmm. Maybe you prove that from the monotone convergence theorem. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, everything goes back to the least upper bound property or something like it. Which is an axiom. Which is an axiom, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but it sort of makes sense that you'd have to ultimately appeal to some heavy-duty axiom because, like I said, for the rational numbers, constant value theorem fails. So at mm, some point, right. you really need to appeal to the completeness of the, the real. Yeah, the structure of the real numbers. This is fascinating. I've never really thought about it in this much detail. This is great. Okay. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to blow your mind because Good. this is the really cool part. Yeah. Okay. The constant value theorem isn't just a consequence of a least upper bound property. Yeah. It actually implies the least upper bound property. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so all these facts, this, this chain of implications actually closes up to become a loop. Okay. Each of them implies all the others. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, so the precise statement is that if you have uh, an ordered field, so that's a number mm -hmm. system that satisfies the field axioms, you've got the four basic operations of mm -hmm. you know, pre-college math, as, mm -hmm. as well as inequality, satisfying the usual axioms there. Mm -hmm. And it has the Archimedean property, which we don't teach at the pre-college level, but you know, informally it just says that nothing is infinitely bigger or infinitely smaller than anything else in our mm -hmm. number system. Mm -hmm. Take right. any positive thing, add it to itself enough times, it becomes as big as you like. Okay. You know, enough mice added together can outweigh an elephant. Sure. Yeah. That kind of thing. Right. Um, so if you've got an ordered field that satisfies the Archimedean property, then each of those eight propositions is equivalent to all the others. Okay. So I really like that because yeah. somehow we tend to think of math as being kind of linear in the sense that you have axioms and from those you prove theorems and from those you prove more theorems, but it's a kind of a unidirectional flow mm -hmm. of the sap of implication. Mm -hmm. But this is sort of more organic that there's sort of a two-way traffic between the axioms and the theorems. And sometimes the theorems contain the axioms hidden inside them. So I kind of like that. Excellent. Yeah. So math's a circle, it's not a line. That's right. <laughs> anyway, I did say I was going to talk about two theorems. So what okay. I've talked yeah. about is that, that was the continuous mm -hmm. uh, constant value theorem. Okay. So I want to tell you about something that I call the discrete constant value theorem that someone else may have given another name to, but I've never seen it, uh, which also says that if something doesn't change, it's constant. Mm -hmm. But now we're talking about sequences. So the something is just going to be some sequence. Mm -hmm. And when I say doesn't change, it means each term is equal to the next, or the difference between them is zero. Mm -hmm. OK. So how would you prove that? Yeah, it really feels like something you don't need to prove. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> but if you had to, if you pretend for the moment that it's not obvious, then how would you convince yourself? Yeah. So, so you're trying to show that the sequence is eventually constant. It's it's constant from the get go. Every term is equal to the next. Yeah. So, so the definition of your sequence is a, or part of the definition of your sequence is a n equals a n plus one. That's right. Minus right. one. Right. Uh, so I guess you'd have to use uh, induction. Right. Yeah, you'd use mathematical induction. Right. Okay. So you can prove this principle theorem using mathematical induction, but the reverse is also true. Sure. You can actually prove the principle of mathematical induction from the discrete constant value theorem. And maybe we should actually say what the principle of mathematical induction is. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. So that would be, um, you know, if you want to to prove that something is true for, a, a, you know, the entire set of whole numbers, you prove it for the first one, for one, and then prove that if it's true for n, then it's true for n plus one. So I kind of, I always have this image in my mind of, of like someone hauling in a chain or, or like a big rope on a boat or something. And they're like, you know, each, each pull of the, of their arm is the, uh, is the next number and you just pull it in and the whole thing gets into the boat. Apparently <laughs> that's mm -hmm. what you want to be. Um, yeah. So that's induction. Yeah. So, so you can use mathematical induction to prove the discrete constant value theorem, but you can also do the reverse. Okay. So just as the continuous constant value theorem could be used as an axiom of completeness for the real number system, the discrete constant value theorem could be used as an axiom for, I don't want to say completeness, but the heavy duty axiom for doing arithmetic over the counting numbers mm -hmm. to replace the axiom of induction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it has me uh putting in my mind like, oh, how could I rephrase, you know, my standard induction proof that at this point kind of just runs runs itself once I decide to try to prove something by induction, uh, like how to make that into a sequence, a statement about sequences. Yeah, for some for some applications it's not so natural, but one of the applications we teach students for mathematical induction is proving formulas. Right. Like Right. Some of the first n positive integers is mm -hmm. n times n plus one over two. Right. And so we do a base case and then we do an induction step and that's the format we usually use. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, proving formulas like that has been more or less automated these days. Not sure. completely, but a lot of it has been. Uh, and the way computers actually prove things like that is, is using something more like the discrete constant value theorem. Okay. Mm. So. So for example, say you've got a sequence whose nth term is defined as the sum of the first n positive integers. Okay. So it's one comma one plus two comma one plus two plus three comma oh. dot dot dot. Mm -hmm. Then you have another sequence whose nth term is defined by the formula n times n plus one over two. Right. And you ask a computer to prove that those two sequences are equal to each other term by term. Mm -hmm. okay. The way these automated systems will work is they will show that the two sequences differ by a constant. And then show that and, the constant is zero. And then there's right. the constant is zero. So you show that the two sequences at each step increase by the same amount. So whatever the initial offset mm -hmm. was, uh -huh. it's gonna be the same. And then you see what that offset is. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, sure. So this is, this is a lot looking a lot more like what we do in differential equations classes, where mm -hmm. you know if you try and solve a differential equation, you determine the solution up to some unknown 
you know, real parameters, and then you mm -hmm. solve for them from initial conditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a real strong analogy between solving difference equations in discrete math and solving differential equations in continuous math. But somehow the sure. way we teach the subjects hides that. Yeah. And in particular, the way we teach mathematical induction by sort of having the base case come first and then the induction step come later is right. the reverse order from what we do with differential equations. But there's a way to you know, change the way we present things. So they're both mathematically rigorous, but they're much more similar to each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got this bad habit of compartmentalizing in math, right? I mean, the, the lower level of the, the lower levels of the curriculum, you know, it's like, okay, well, in this course, you do derivatives and optimization. And in this course, you learn how to plow through integration techniques. And in this course, is multivariable stuff. And in this course, we're going to talk about differential equations. Only later do you do the more interesting things of like induction and things like that. Um, so are you arguing that we should just, you know, scrap it all and, and start with induction on day one? <laughs> start with induction? No. Sure, why not? I've given talks called about why we should not teach mathematical induction. We should oh, really? Yeah. We should, I mean, it's not entirely serious, but yeah. I argue yeah. that we should basically teach the, theory, the difference calculus mm -hmm. as a sort of counterpart to the differential calculus mm -hmm. and, and give students the chance to see that these you know ideas of the characteristic polynomials and so forth mm -hmm. that work in differential equations also work for difference equations mm -hmm. and then like maybe near the end we can blow their mind with that wonderful result that robert greist talked about yeah where you say that one of these operators the difference operators mm -hmm. e to the power of the derivative operator right yeah so they're not just parallel theories they're linked in right. this profound way right mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I was just thinking this uh, episode reminded me a lot of our conversation with him, uh, just linking linking those two things that yeah they they are you know very in very different places in in my mental map of how how I think about math. All right, so what does one pair with these theorems? Okay, uh, I'm gonna pair the potato chip. Okay. okay. Great. I love potato chips. I do too. Um, so I think potato chips sort of bridge the gap between continuous mathematics and discrete mathematics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the potato chip as an icon of continuous mathematics comes by way of Stokes' theorem. Sure. Because if you ever see these sort of books like Purcell's Electromagnetism that sort of illustrate what Stokes' theorem is telling you, you have a closed loop and a membrane spanning in it. Right. Like mm -hmm. a potato chip. Sure. Uh-huh. Right. And uh, the potato chip as icon of discrete mathematics comes from the way it resembles mathematical induction. You can't eat just one. Okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> eat a potato chip and then another and then another. And you keep saying this is the last one, but there is no last potato chip. And yeah. Because there's no last potato chip, you just keep eating them. That's right. Then you, <laughs> yeah. need, you need another bag. That's it. Right. Yeah. yeah. But the other reason I really like the potato chip as a sort of a unifying theme of mathematics is that potato chips are crisp mm. in the way that mathematics as a whole is crisp. <laughs> you know, people complain sometimes that math is dry, but yeah. that's not really what they're complaining about because people love potato chips, which are also dry. Yeah. <laughs> um, what they really mean is that it's flavorless, that the way it's being taught to them lacks flavor. Well, that's mm -hmm. valid actually, yeah. So yeah. I think what we need to do is, you know, when the math is too flavorless, sometimes we have to dip it into something. Yeah, get your onion dip or... Yeah. yeah. The onion dip of applications <laughs> yep. or the, the salsa of biography, but, you know. Right. But math itself should not be moist, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, think we math... Yeah. So, so do, you, do you prefer, like, the, you know, plain, like, salted, obviously, uh, 
potato chips or, or do you like the the flavors yeah i don't like the flavors so much i like oh. uh, i don't see. go for barbecue or anything like that no i just oh. like the salt I, I i like the salt and vinegar that's yeah that, that's a good one but uh kettle chips makes this salt and pepper oh yeah, yeah, yeah. i've had those it's great those and are good their their honey dijon is one of my favorites too and i love barbecue i love every i, I love a lot of flavors of chips i shouldn't say every um well, yeah, because because Lay's always has this deal every year with the competition, like with these crazy flavors. So, like they they had the chicken and waffles one. Yeah, one I think there was yeah. a cappuccino one time. Yeah, I didn't try that one. No, that that's, that's actually I just realized though, potato chips are, are have even more mathematical content than I was mm -hmm. thinking because yeah. uh, there's the whole idea of negative curvature of surfaces. Yes, sure, the, right. the Pringles is the the er example of yeah. the negative curved surface. Yeah, and also there's this wacky idea of varifold limits of manifolds where you have these corrugated surfaces and you make the corrugations mm. get smaller and smaller. Like, oh. I think it's ruffles, is ruffles. it ruffles? Yeah, right. 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 yeah and so a varifold is like the limit of a ruffles potato chip as the okay. ruffles shrink, <laughs> the angle don't decrease to zero. So you probably right. get a whole Correct. Yeah, we need a spin-off podcast. That's of right. Like, yeah. You know, make this tell tell what this potato chip says about math. Right. <laughs> Just give everyone a potato chip and <laughs> go for it. Excellent. Yeah. Very nice. I I like this pairing a lot. And yeah. Even though it's it's now like eight thirty something, I'll probably go eat some potato chips before I have breakfast or as breakfast. I want to thank you, Evelyn, because I know it wasn't your choice to do it this early in the morning. <laughs> I am childcare issues, so thank you for your flexibility. I dug deep. Well, it, it was a sunny day today, so it actually the light coming in helped wake me up. It's been really rainy this whole month, and that's not great for me getting out of bed before, you know, 10 or 11 in sure. the morning. So we also like to give our guests a chance to plug things. You have some stuff coming up, right? I do. Yeah. Um, well, there's always my mathematical enchantments essays. And uh, sure. I think my July essay, which will come out on the 17th, as always, mm -hmm. will be about the constant value theorems. And I'll okay. include links to stuff I've written on the subject. So anyone who wants to know more should definitely go first to my blog. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in early August, I'll be giving some talks in New York City, uh, and they'll be about a theorem with some visual content called the Wall of Fire Theorem, which I love, uh, and which was actually inspired by an exhibit at the museum. So it's going to be great to actually give a talk right next to the exhibit that inspired it. Oh, yeah. Very okay. nice. This is at the Museum of Math, the National Museum of Math, right? Okay. Yeah, I'll actually give a bunch of talks. So the first talk is going to be like a short one, 20 minutes. It's part of a conference called MOVES which mm -hmm. stands for the Mathematics of Various Entertaining Subjects. Yep. It's built every two years at the museum. Yep. And I don't know if my talk will be on the 4th, 5th, or 6th of August, but it'll be somewhere in that range. Okay. And then the second talk will be a bit longer, quite a bit longer, and it's for the general public. And I'll give it twice on August 7th, first at 4 p.m. and then at 7 p.m. And it'll feature a hands-on component for audience members, so okay. it should be fun. So and that's right. part of the museum's Math Encounters series, which is held every month. Mm -hmm. And uh, for people who aren't able to come to the talk, there'll be a video on the Math Encounters website at some point. Okay. Oh, good. I've been meaning to check that because I'm on their email list, and so I get that. But obviously, living in Salt Lake City, I don't uh, end up at, at <laughs> in New York a whole lot. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm always like, oh, that would have been a nice one to go to. Yeah. But I'll, I'll have to look for the videos. So, Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you for uh, having me. Thanks, thanks for making me confront the uh, that that things go backwards in mathematics sometimes. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thanks again. Yeah, lots of fun. Thank Talk you very later. much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lamb. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, 
a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Wen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at NivikNazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M, that's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.